You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. On today's episode, we'll take a look at, first, as Keir Starmer's Labour Party announced they've abandoned their £28 billion green investment pledge on the very same day that the world reaches 1.5 degrees warming, we look at the structural forces pushing this economic insanity. Second, we turn to Europe. With yet more farmers' protests and a surging radical right, how could we build a progressive coalition in the face of climate breakdown? And third, we answer another listener's question. Why are supermarkets so keen on us using their loyalty cards? Before we begin today's show, here's a little note from our friends at Founders and Coders, a collective of software developers aiming to build the technologies we need for a just and sustainable future. They're here to tell you about their project, OnBlock, which sets out to match developers to tech companies, putting the people we need on the forefront of technological innovation. And just a heads up, this isn't a paid plug, we just think that this is an important project. We live in a world where the design and development of technology remains the preserve of a wealthy few. And if you're a small startup or a grassroots charity, it's tough to make meaningful social change when the tech services are both inaccessible and unaffordable. At OnBlock, we're flipping the script. We believe the strength of any enterprise lies in the bonds between its members. And we're dedicated to doing more than delivering software. We're networking together a new generation of developers and inspiring growing organizations on their tech journey from an early idea to a realized vision. We provide services and advice in software engineering from a community of talented developers. So if you're a self-starter, entrepreneur, or young organization looking to drive social impact, we can help you. Head over to unblock.uk. That's E-N-B-L-O-C dot U-K. Unblock, all together or not at all. Time for our first story this week. And it has to be Keir Starmer's Labour Party abandoning its solitary remaining big policy commitment, the £28 billion a year investment that was meant to be the Green Prosperity Plan. This is a glum but sadly not unpredictable outcome. And even more depressing that it came, as many have pointed out, on the very same day that the world breached the dreaded 1.5 degrees Celsius marker for average global temperature rises. As seems to be the perennial case these days, the last year was once again the hottest year on record. So it's in that context that, after months of speculation, Starmer's Labour Party has finally ditched its £28 billion green investment pledge in favour of a somewhat measly and unsubstantial £4.5 billion commitment. And I say commitment here in the loosest possible sense. If you abandon things as a party before you're even in office, facing all the real pressures of government, God knows what happens to your commitments once you're actually in government. This is a moment that's been building over the last 12 months. We've seen continual press briefings from the right of the Labour Party against both the Green Prosperity Plan and its front bench champion, the Shadow Secretary of State for Climate Change and former Labour Party leader, Ed Miliband. And it's worth reiterating here that even this £28 billion figure was still some distance short of what's actually needed to face up to the realities of the climate crisis. 
Research from the think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research, calculated that we need at least £33 billion spent on decarbonisation every single year just to meet the targets that Britain has already committed to in terms of cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Now, as I've said many times in this podcast, money isn't everything here. Climate change won't be solved with spending alone. What's happening now is a fundamental break with how we've been living and relating to the natural world for the past few centuries. And facing up to that is going to require a real reorganisation of both our economies and actually our lives. Working less, living differently, demanding greater equality. All of this we've been through before. But given this fact, it can't be denied that a large pile of cash would go a very long way. And there's no getting away from the fact that rewiring our economies is going to cost a lot of money. Now, I try to avoid getting too bogged down in day-to-day party politics here on the show, partly because it's a bit of a rabbit hole. And once you start, it's easy to get lost in the details of past failures rather than taking stock of where we are now and where we need to get to in the future. But mostly because party politics in Britain is incredibly parochial and we need to get out of the little boxes that the Westminster chatter is trying to trap us in. This isn't just about the 24-hour news cycle or who made the best joke at Prime Minister's question time. These are big-picture economic issues which deserve a bit more care and attention. It's become fashionable in recent years to put everything that happens down to ideology and then to ignore the huge structural factors that dominate political and economic decision-making, whether we are aware of them or not. Climate breakdown is without a doubt the most dominant of these factors and it is the most consistently ignored. So with that in mind, I want to put Starmer's peculiar and basically self-destructive decision in two contexts to properly understand what has happened and why. For the remainder of this story, I want to talk briefly about British capitalism and its particular combination of contradictions and failings. And then in the second story, I want to dip into the European context to see how these same contradictions are playing out across the whole continent. In Britain, as everywhere, the rational, basically capitalist case against austerity spending cuts is very clear and is, by this point, the dominant view even in the economic mainstream. The case against austerity goes something like this. By cutting government spending in a weak economy, you are sucking spending power out of that economy. The government is buying less and the people it employs are buying less, so businesses sell less. When businesses sell less, they will likely look to employ fewer people or cut their wages and hours. That means more people with less to spend, setting up a vicious circle. In a weak economy, all austerity is likely to do is worsen those weaknesses. It is also widely accepted, right across the mainstream, from the Institute for Government to the Resolution Foundation, that investment spending in particular in Britain has been low for decades. The country has had the lowest investment spending by government of any G7 economy every year going back 30 years. If you want an explanation as to why Britain is typically doing so much worse than those comparable G7 economies, the best place to start is with its low investment. No investment means no new railway tracks, no new power stations, no new hospitals. All the essential physical stuff that makes a modern economy tick. And yet the rhetoric from Starmer, attempting to justify scrapping a big investment plan, was to argue that they could not spend this money because the economy was so weak. But why, you might ask, is the economy so weak? Well, mostly because governments weren't spending. And why didn't they spend? Just ask George Osborne, who became Chancellor in 2010 and oversaw massive cuts to investment spending, 
Osborne claimed we couldn't spend any more money because the economy was so weak. You might start to see the problem here. I call this the Treasury Doom Loop, and it's now playing out over successive generations. Once you have economic decision-making dominated by short-term considerations like this, you get trapped. Even the rhetoric to justify this madness is the same. Osborne claimed the credit card was maxed out and Starmer has been using the exact same phrasing 15 years later. We are well and truly trapped. And the reason those decisions are short-term has a real economic cause. It's ultimately to do with the huge size of our financial system. The logic runs like this. To have a financial system with assets many times larger than the size of the whole economy means running the risk that when that financial system blows up, as large financial systems are likely to do, it is hugely expensive for government to step in and bail it out. We saw this in 2008. It was hugely expensive to bail out the financial system. What later spending cuts and all the flap around keeping debt down and all the rest do is act as a guarantee that the government will have the capacity to step in when things go wrong in the financial system. In other words, the real weakness in Britain's public sector finances is in reality somewhere else. It's in its bloated financial system, which despite the crash, despite Jeremy Corbyn, despite even Brexit, has dusted itself down and carried on much as before. If I had to guess where Labour thought their plan was landing, I think the leadership have, in their heads, a plan to normalise British capitalism as much as possible, which primarily means moving it back closer to Europe, changing the Brexit deal next year when the Trade and Cooperation Agreement comes up for renegotiation, and doing everything possible to preserve the leading position of the financial sector in the British economy. That would mean sending the clearest possible signal that Labour would now be a safe pair of hands for British capitalism and the British state, and all the rhetoric from Starmer and Rachel Reeves leans that way. But there's a problem here. If you're going to position yourself as the sensible head of what is a fundamentally dysfunctional institution, you're still going to end up doing dysfunctional things. There's no point competently managing stupidity. And yet the competent management of stupidity is now the centrepiece of Labour's programme for government. If the doom loop isn't broken, it doesn't take too much to see where this ends up. An extended decline of public services torn apart by austerity and a wider economy that is limping along just as climate and nature crises really begin to bite. Assuming Labour win, and the polls say they will, and they stick to their plans, I wouldn't put money on them making it to a second term in one piece. On to our second story this week, which is the rollback on environmental spending and legislation that is happening right across Europe. It's not much remarked upon in the context of either Labour's eco-turn or Rishi Sunak's backing away from climate policy, but the same thing is happening right across the continent. In European countries from France to Poland, investment plans are being frozen and measures like bans on pesticide use being rolled back. Green parties across Europe, which are typically much stronger than in England, made bumper gains in 2019, but are now facing serious losses in European and national elections this year. The style of eco-modernism that once radical Green parties had come to offer, with the German Green Party and the vanguard, seems to be falling rapidly out of favour with European electorates. This green lash is real. A wave of farmers' protests have spread across the continent over the last few years, initially in the Netherlands, but recently across Germany, France and Poland. 
and typically tying up a range of complaints from the cost of environmental legislation to the alleged threat of cheap Ukrainian wheat imports. The radical right, which is currently set to make substantial gains in EU elections later in the year, have capitalised on this discontent. In the Netherlands, a newly formed right-wing populist farmers' party won half a million votes and seven seats in the Dutch parliament in the last elections there. At the same time, representatives of European agribusiness have been pushing hard against environmental legislation. The result has been a rollback by governments like Macron's in France that had earlier signed up, apparently enthusiastically, to various versions of eco-modernism. Underneath all of this, however, is a bigger picture story, one of rising costs for green investments. Interest rates have risen in Europe just as they have across the globe, and inflation everywhere has shot up, remaining today much higher than just three years ago. As Makarov has always argued, and institutions like the International Monetary Fund and even the European Central Bank are now noting, the environmental crisis is a major part of those rising costs. The effects of climate change and the crisis of nature are expensive, which ironically makes tackling those effects rather harder. This rising cost has been directly cited by Labour's shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, as part of the reason for the party rolling back on its own spending plans. But of course, this means that what we have entered is a real doom loop. Never mind the Treasury or Britain. This is about the planet we all live on. As climate change and the crisis of nature worsen, it becomes harder and harder to take action to address them. We've squandered the relatively calm period in the last few decades of low interest rates, low inflation, and crucially, limited ecological costs, and now have to take increasingly more dramatic action at precisely the point where the costs of that action are rising. If you want a nice, clear transition point from one state of the world to the other, the arrival of COVID is a clear marker, hence Adam II's calling the pandemic the first crisis of the Anthropocene. This here is our unfortunate reality. We are now trapped in a planet-wide economic and ecological doom loop. So the question is how to get out of it. And it's here that I think the basic technocratic appeal of the European climate movement which for years argued that we could get win-wins from big green investment, more jobs, more growth, and so on, is rapidly running out of road. We need instead to start thinking about how to respond from the bottom up, on one side, and on the other, lifting our sights higher than thinking only about what our national state can do. What looks like a striking example of this is starting to come together around the farmers' protests in France. Environmental groups like Friends of the Earth and the more radical Célèbement de la Terre, Earth Uprising, have been actively supporting farmers' protests, siding with the smaller farmers and those often organised by the Peasants' Union in demanding protections for smaller-scale, ecologically-friendly farming against the depredations of big agribusiness. We covered a version of this over the protests in France against the Megabassine last year, these are the giant reservoir projects intended to serve the demands of agribusiness for massive water resources at the expense of local residents and smaller farmers. But here with the farmers, it's not just a protest about adaptation to climate change, it's also about mitigation. All these issues are arriving all at once. Smaller farmers have lost out for decades in Europe, first from the Common Agricultural Policy, which sees 80% of its payments going to 20% of farms, and they are now also under direct threats from the proposed EU-Mercosur free trade deal with South American countries, which will see such protections as they have removed in the name of cheap food imports for which read big agribusiness profits. 
The period since the financial crisis in 2008 has seen a dramatic squeeze on smaller farmers, with hundreds of thousands going out of business under pressure of debt, rising costs and competition from the agribusinesses. Poland, for instance, has seen 200,000 farms close since 2010, leaving fewer, larger producers behind. Consumers, meanwhile, have also more recently lost out. The same agribusinesses squeezing smaller farmers and lobbying governments for favours are those that have profited from the recent surge in food prices. Ordinary consumers and small farmers face the same enemy. The profiteers at the top end of the agricultural food chain. So, too, do all those motivated by concern for what is happening to the planet. Now, that's a powerful new political block to be constructed around these sets of demands, each taking on a different part of the costs of environmental collapse and insisting that those costs be met by those best able to afford them, the top of society, the biggest corporations. For the rest of us, an ecological transformation of some of our most basic food systems has to come from below, not the grand schemes of technocrats, politically captured by big business interests, but in the demands for food sovereignty and control over how, where and what we grow and eat, managed in the interests of smaller producers, consumers and the planet. I think you can start to see that historic block appearing in a range of configurations in the teeth of this crisis. The mobilisation of non-payment against energy price surges, led in the UK by Don't Pay UK, was another example of the same kind of formation. I've mentioned it before, but AJ Singh Chowdhury's concept of the exhausted bringing together all those drained by extracted capitalism in all its forms, the temp worker paying through the nose for basic food, the small farmer facing massive bills for fertilizer, the local resident facing water shortages as agribusinesses drain limited supplies, can start to organize themselves. His book, The Exhausted of the Earth, will be out in a couple of weeks. And again, this is another macrodose must-read. Right, on a slightly lighter note, our third and final story this week is responding to a listener's question. This one is from Jacob, who got in touch a little while ago to ask, could you do a brief explainer on the economics of Tesco club card points? What do the supermarkets have to gain? Thanks for the question, Jacob, and allowing me to change the tone from the earlier ecological economics doom and gloom. Now, there's a fairly straight mainstream economics answer to this, which involves charging consumers with different preferences, different amounts. This is called price discrimination. It makes use of the idea that since each consumer in theory has their own unique preferences and demands, it is never possible for a single market price to exactly match every consumer's preferences. Some will be paying less than they would want to, whilst others will not buy anything. By setting different prices for different consumers, a seller can aim to sell more products. So in the case of Tesco club card points, effectively different prices are being offered to consumers that Tesco knows have already shopped at the store in order to induce them to return. That's the basic sort of economics A-level type answer. And it's fine as far as it goes. But far more interesting is something that I saw the economic historian Mike Haynes flag the other day. Mike blogs at the jobbing lefty historian and typically offers a very empirically grounded, often somewhat contrarian take on economic news. So loyalty cards were first introduced in Britain by Tesco's in 1995, followed a few years later by Boots and then other major retailers by the early 2000s. Mike reckons there are two reasons supermarkets use the cards. The first, as a way of attracting sales they might otherwise not make, like the A-level economics story would tell you. 
The second is far more interesting, as he says, and this is to run a massive data-grabbing operation. Mike writes, and I quote, Club cards require us to register our address and other information so they can track us. It enables supermarkets to know our deepest secrets, to use them to make specific offers and to determine what is sold in stores. The supermarkets could get this information from our credit cards or from a company like Experian, which tracks most of us. But then they would have to pay the credit card provider. With a loyalty card, we give our data to them freely and directly every time we pass a card to the till assistant. Mike reckons the amount of data the supermarkets can obtain like this is crazy. I quote, 20 years ago, a group of academics asked Boots to give them access to the purchasing data of a single anonymized Advantage card holder. Consider what they could learn. They immediately saw it was a woman. They nicknamed her Eve. Think it through then. They could work out her likely age, likely job, holidays, periods, whether she has been having sex when she became pregnant. They soon thought they had better stop. They realized they were stalking a real person in a way that if they did it in person would get them arrested. End quote. Even better for the supermarkets, they can then parcel this consumer data up and sell it on. Mike cites the Times newspaper estimate that claims Sainsbury's and Tesco's make £300 million a year from selling consumer data. Typically, this will be to advertisers and media companies keen to refine their own targeting of consumers. So there you go. You may think it's you doing the buying at Tesco's, but every time you use your loyalty card, it's Tesco selling you. So thanks for your question, Jacob. And do keep your listener questions coming in as I'll be answering them each week. You can reach us on email, which is macrodose at planetbproductions.co.uk, on Spotify, or on Patreon using the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.